Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 35 and 36, which begin with the Atollers rushing to get a good spot for the execution and end with a line of smokers on jet skis speeding towards the Atoll. Despite having just woken up, Helen and Enola are pretty quick to join the stream of people heading to the Organo Barge. Yeah. She knows what is happening. Like She was at the meeting at least enough to know the purpose of everybody's out and aboutness. Yeah. So she wants to be there. She's joining the crowd. It's an advantage of sleeping in your clothes. Yes. That you don't yes, have to is. take time to get ready. <laughs> yeah. Something really bothers me. Oh, I have a feeling I know exactly what it is. Yeah. Like not even 10 seconds into this clip. The banker meanly, actively pushes her out of the way and says, get out of the way. Yeah. and like, then the what? And then the atoll man behind the banker. Yeah, does the same thing. Like he actively shoves her. The banker, you could suggest, oh, he's walking and he doesn't want to duck out of her way and he just shoulders past her. The atoll guy behind her actively shoves Helen. Yeah. Like, these people hate Helen right now. Yeah, they really do. They really do. And then I know you don't like jumping forward, but I need to jump forward because... Oh, you're talking about when the lady bumps into Helen? Yes, but not the lady. Oh, yeah, the guy next to her. Is the banker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so, you got the banker on one side of her, but then there's another guy on the other side of her. Yes. It's later on when they're watching the Mariner being lowered down. The banker is standing right next to Helen, almost leering over her. All of a sudden, like, he likes her. Uh, I don't know about if it's uh, that kind of leering. You think it's a, what kind of leering do you think it is? I think it's a sort of how long until she's in the cage oh, sort of leering. Oh, okay. Like a sarcastic spite. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm on board with that. That's pretty gross. Okay. Like we're doing this I to was... him and then eventually we're going to do that to you because you're yeah. trouble. I was just so surprised at the attitude of the banker and the second atoller right behind the banker. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so openly disliking of Helen. It's It was shocking to me. It's very aggressive. Yeah. And for people living in such a confined community, mm -hmm. that level of aggression can quickly turn very toxic, which is exactly what we saw at the public meeting. I do need to point out that you can tell that this is a community that does not partake in sexual pleasures because if it was, Helen would be incredibly popular because she is beautiful <laughs> and sexy. And if men looked at women in this society as sexual objects, they would treat her different. That's a very good point. They do not have the luxury to be sexually flippant all of that stuff is very strictly controlled yep and so they only hate her because she's outspoken and she's enola's guardian and they don't trust enola mm -hmm. we go from helen crouching over enola seemingly protecting her from the people streaming by to the raised platform over the organo barge and i initially questioned why have this structure built up the way it is? But there are at least three, I guess, curved structures, curved beams. I don't know what the right thing. 
the structure is the walkway, and then coming off the walkway are three curved beams with either hanging cages or hooks. Obviously, there's the cage that the mariner is in, but there's also a cage hanging in the background off to the right. And then there doesn't seem to be a cage hanging off the hook to the left, but that doesn't mean that there isn't one at all. So I think this is just the jail for the atoll. When someone is a troublemaker, they get tossed in one of these hanging cages. Do you think that happens frequently? Frequently enough that they have to have three. Yeah, they definitely seem like a we-don't-take-prisoners sort of society. Either you've done nothing wrong and you're a free person, Mm -hmm. or you get recycled. With how strict they are with population control, I imagine that they don't have the luxury to toss people into the bog with abandon. Everybody in that atoll likely has a job, has a purpose, has a need that they fill. One reason they may not like Nola is she doesn't seem to have a job or a purpose that she fulfills. She's a kid. Do the other kids have purposes? I don't know. But if one of their own gets in trouble, you throw them in the cage, they cool off for a half a day, and then you let them out and they get back to work. Okay. So their punishments are perhaps more limited than our society's punishments. Yeah. They're not going to keep someone in prison for five years, for 10 years, for life. Right. Because they don't have the 13th Amendment that lets you make that person work for essentially free. Well, that's what all these people are doing anyways. Yeah, but that's different because they're working as a member of the community as opposed to a prisoner of the community. Yeah. Because if they took prisoners that way, then they'd be no better than the slavers, and they are so much better than the slavers. Oh, so much better than the slavers. (laughs) There's also something visually about the atollers and the way they're walking. They're all walking in a straight line relatively calmly. Well, yeah, it's not like the cage is going anywhere. They can take their time. Right, but so there are separate pathways that they can take in order to fill all of the available front row seating. So they're all walking in single file, and then they branch off into the different rows Mm -hmm. that they could. It reminds me of middle school choir, when the kids are coming in, and then they like file onto their steps on the risers. Uh That's what it looks like to me. (laughs) It's very organized. Well, yeah, everybody's got to get in position for the show, and the... But then, and then but the then, elder elders are up top. As we start to see the real action, the mariner, and we're kind of focused on the mariner, looking behind him at the groups of people, they are no longer organized. It's very clear that they walked in so organized that that's a production thing. <laughs> that production was like, okay, guys, you're gonna come in and you're gonna you're gonna file in and you're gonna fill the places that we have designated that you are going to be, and you need to keep moving. You have to be in place by a certain time, and you have to hit your mark and all that kind of stuff. And what the result was is this very organized looking filing in. <laughs> but they didn't stay that way. So everybody's gathered. The population elders are up on the raised platform. All of the plebes are on the lower walkways. And the population elder steps up and he says that after considerable deliberation of the evidence at hand, it is their decision that this muto does indeed constitute a threat. And therefore, in the interest of public safety, he is sentenced to be recycled in the customary fashion. So the phrase in the customary fashion 
tells me that this has been used as a capital punishment before. Yeah. I think their choice to do this in the customary fashion is dangerous. Sort of. It occurs to me that he can breathe underwater. Mm -hmm. And I know this is not underwater. Where he is going is not underwater. Yeah, this is not water. But what they know is that he can breathe underwater. They do not know the extent of his abilities. What if he can't drown? What if he doesn't drown under there? They're taking that risk. They don't know what he is or what he can do. And they're taking that risk anyways. Instead of slitting his throat. That's what I'm saying. Is that they should have just slit his throat and then dumped him in. Why take any chances? So you wanted Artie Call to come up here with a knife. Yes. Reach through the bars and slash Kevin Costner's throat. Yes, I do. Because why do something slow <laughs> when you can do it fast? Why do something with a question mark? When you can do it with an exclamation point. Because you just drop the cage into the bog and you let it sit there for a few days. And you let nature swing the final blow. I see the advantage of that. In the passiveness of the capital punishment. They didn't kill him. He drowned. Mm -hmm. Never mind that they set up the circumstances of his drowning, but they didn't kill him. So I totally get that and that's exactly what they're after. But... If you do something slow, you always risk it going awry. Yeah, that's why you don't strap your super spies to a table and then have a laser slowly move up you the length of the table. You just slit their throats. I was going to say you shoot them, but you know that works too. Yeah, that works too. Before the cage actually starts lowering, we cut down to the lower walkway around 41 seconds in, and we get that shot that you were talking about earlier with the banker leering at Helen and... The look on his face definitely says to me, oh, we're going to put you in the cage next. Yeah. Now that you say that, I definitely agree with you. And he is standing uncomfortably close. Uh-huh. This area is not packed. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of space for people to spread out. Something I noticed about this shot in particular is there is a woman to Helen's left that is filling in the walkway and she bumps into Helen and pulls away. And then the man next to the woman who bumped into Helen leans over the uh, bumping woman, I guess is going to be her descriptor right now. Yeah. And he is saying something. His lips are moving. We can't hear it. Yeah. But he is I saying something to Helen. Probably something mean. Mm -hmm. There's a woman who, is she pregnant? On the other side of the banker. We see her like in three quarter profile. Mm -hmm. And she's also looking at Helen. Doesn't seem to like her much. But I think she's pregnant. Think it's pregnancy and not just a little bit of a belly? No. Women don't gain weight that way. Men gain weight that way. Men have the ability to gain weight nowhere but their bellies. Women don't do that. <laughs> if she were putting on some poundage, you wouldn't be able to see her collarbone so well. Mm. Her cheeks would be filling out. Her boobs would really maybe be bigger, maybe not. Boobs don't really fall into the same categories as the rest of a woman's body as far as like getting bigger when a woman gains weight. Uh-huh. No, that's pregnancy belly. Okay. And also her boobs should be bigger because once you're that far along, you know, speaking from my vast years of experience of never being pregnant, but once you're that far along, your boobs should start getting bigger. No, but she doesn't seem to like Helen either. People not liking Helen. That's the latest fashion. Yes. Let's cut up to the platform again because the enforcer has placed his hand on the crank for the cage and he looks the mariner in the eyes and says, 
I'm sorry. And there are plenty of things that the Enforcer could be apologizing for in this moment. Not stepping in sooner when the Gatesman attacked the Mariner. Allowing the Mariner to be caged in the first place. Not doing a better job of defending him at the public hearing. Upholding the Mariner's captivity by chasing off Grigor. And of course, literally being the man to turn the crank, bringing the cage into the bog. I don't know. I agree with the Enforcer's apology. That he felt the need to apologize. Saying, I'm sorry that I have to do this. I'm sorry that this is happening to you. But all along the way, he has been following the rules that have been set by the committee. And he was hired to follow those rules. And it is not his place to opinionate on those rules. He was hired to follow them and enforce them. Yeah, his number one goal is to keep the peace. And in this instance, the death of one man will keep the peace for the whole atoll. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah, and he, for sure, as a level-headed person, a very level-headed person, realizes that this isn't the right thing to do. But in some ways, it is. It's the right thing because it is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and it is the rules that he was hired to enforce. It still ignores that if you let the Mariner leave, it fulfills a lot of the same things, but... If the Mariner just leaves, then you've got this general dissidence of, oh, no, he was a spy. He's going to bring the smokers down upon us. Yeah. Rabble, rabble, rabble. And if they know the Enforcer was in on him leaving, the Enforcer is going to lose his job and probably his life. Yeah. Well, the Enforcer in the young adult novel at one point says that he can go to a different atoll and be an Enforcer there. Yeah. He has a marketable skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's a big, tough looking guy. Yeah. Those are always needed in other atolls. Side note about the Enforcer. Often when I name him, I pause beforehand trying to remember his name because I really, really, really want to call him Gregor. There's something about the way he looks. He looks like a Gregor. As opposed to Gregor? Gregor, who looks like, I don't know, doesn't look like anything. (laughs) (laughs) So... Every time I'm talking about the Enforcer, I have to consciously not call him Gregor. It's the age-old problem that we always have with these post-apocalyptic films, that no one gets a proper name. Right. We spend so much time calling people by their function. And that's usually something we make up. Often these people in the credits don't have names. They have generic labels. Like, you named all of the council members. Yeah, but I only named them based on their job. Yes. As I mentioned before, the Enforcer is the one with his hand on the crank, and he's the one that starts lowering the cage. It reminds me of, I'm pretty sure it's the first episode of Game of Thrones, since we've already mentioned it once in the last few episodes, when Sean Bean, as Ned Stark, says that the man who passes the sentence should be the one to swing the sword. So, in theory, the elders of the Atoll should be the ones turning the crank, but they're passing it off to their enforcer because he's likely strong enough to lower the cage in a measured fashion. (laughs) I'm not sure of what kind of ratcheting system this cage mechanism has, but it probably is one of those where if you unhook the handle in a certain way and just let it go, it will spin wildly until the cage hits the bog. Yeah, they don't want this to be an out-of-control fall, partly because the glasses elder is reciting his prayer over him, 
which has been personalized to the Mariner. Yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of liked it too. I mean, it's pretty dark, but I kind of liked it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the last we really hear from the Glasses Elder, and I did not do my due diligence fully to research him completely, but I will say that the Glasses Elder is played by Leonardo Cimino. He was born November 4th, 1917 in Manhattan, New York City. He is described in his IMDb bio as veteran, little old Italian character actor Leonardo Anthony Cimino. He worked in both movies and TV shows from the late 1950s up until 2007. He was born in New York City, the son of a tailor and a housewife. He played violin as a child and studied at Juilliard as a teenager. He studied acting, directing, and modern dance at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. A small, frail, and wizened fellow with a gaunt face, a slight build, and a distinguished air about him, Leonardo often portrayed shrewd mafioso types, nice elderly gents, and various men of the cloth, which include priests, cardinals, and even the Pope in a production called Monsignor. His top four on IMDb include... The Monster Squad in 1987, where he played the scary German guy. He was in 1984's Dune as the Baron's Doctor. He was in 1991's Hudson Hawk, where he played a cardinal. And of course, here in Waterworld, he was an elder. His first production was back in 1958 in an episode of the TV series The Big Story, and his last acting credit was in 2007 in the movie Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, where he played a character named William. We might also recognize him as playing the role of Felix in Moonstruck. Oh, okay. There's something else on there that we would recognize. Oh, Dune. We would know him from Dune. Yeah. But getting back into the minute proper, as you said, he does customize the funerary rite to reflect the person being killed. He changes too old she was to too strange for life he was. And he says, this muto does now leave us instead of before where the preamp said, this woman does now leave us. So I can imagine that they have all sorts of fun little words to swap out based on the situation. Mm -hmm. Like if they are putting someone in the bog for being a murderer, they probably say, you know, too violent for life he was <laughs> or if they have someone who is a kleptomaniac too thieving for life it's very versatile for sure it is as the mariner is being lowered down he does seem to zero in on somebody is that somebody helen yes okay why because out of everybody on this atoll the mariner had the most direct interaction with her because not only did he do the initial deal, buying the water, asking what she had in stock. He noticed that she was different from everybody else. And you could tell that he softened his demeanor with her a bit. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's how I interpreted that interaction between her and him. Okay. And of course, she's the one that chased after him to ask about Dryland. She's more interesting than everybody else who was just either spying on him or going about their daily life. Yeah. So let's leave the Organo Barge behind and cut over to the lookout tower, because there is an atoller, and he is holding a navigator's telescope looking around at the horizon, and I like the inclusion of him holding a spyglass like this, which I keep calling it a spyglass. It's a navigator's telescope, but it reminds me 
of the last time I saw someone using a device like this in a Kevin Costner movie, namely Morgan Freeman in Robin Hood, <laughs> Prince of Thieves. Yes. That was a cute little moment where Morgan Freeman, he like made it, right? Yeah, he had two polished pieces of crystal yeah. or glass, whatever it was. And a piece of leather. And he just wrapped the leather around them. Yeah. Like it was nothing. It's something he did all the time. They were probably f- specifically for that purpose. It was mm-hmm. probably his kit that just breaks down to something more transportable. So Kevin Costner's Robin of Loxley looks through it and is kind of adorably confused by it. <laughs> he falls backwards. He pulls out his sword. He tries to stab at them. Yeah. The horseman that he sees through the telescope. Yes. It's kind of cute. My favorite part about that is where Morgan Freeman says, how you lot ever managed to take the Holy Land, I will never know. Yeah, right. (laughs) Here on the watchtower, the telescope spies a whole line of smokers completely covering the horizon. And I love the performance of this atoller because he drops the telescope and he's panting and he lets out at the top of his lungs smokers and it is so dedicated to the delivery oh, and i love he it gives it his all a hundred percent he leaves nothing on the table with this line and he specifies that the smokers are coming dead out of the sun coming out of the east even though the banker in the meeting said that the smokers come from the west minor detail we don't need to worry about it i agree we don't need to worry about it because even if they came from the west If they were smart, which they are, they would have circled around to the east so that they could come out of the sun. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to attack from a direction, you attack from the east in the morning. That way, the defenders have the sun in their eyes. Yes. And they have a hard time seeing. The first shot of the attacking fleet, we get this overhead shot. And it's beautiful. It's very blue and white. It. It's absolutely a gorgeous shot. The water is so blue and the splashes and waves are so white. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I love the cleverness of it. They've got the the jet skis out front pretty close together. They are creating just this sheet of white, which hides the numbers of what else is back there. And they're creating so much splash and mist up into the air. It makes it hard to see exactly what's coming for them. They have been incredibly clever about this attack, coming out of the sun and disguising their numbers. Mm -hmm. There's also the added benefit. If you keep the small craft up front in a solid line, then you're not going to have to worry about the small craft being caught up in the wakes of the larger boats. Mm -hmm. The small crafts are making smaller divots in the water, and then the large craft are going to just cut through that wake, not having as hard of a time with it as the jet skis would be if they were coming in behind the boats. Yes. And if the latest episodes of Grand Tour have taught us anything, it's that different sized boats in the water have a hard time functioning around each other because of those waves and the wakes behind them. Mm -hmm. This also definitely feels quite George Miller-esque. I was about to say, this overhead shot of the jet skis is a very blatant callback that Dean Semler is making to his work on the Mad Max films. Yep. Before it was dust, now it's choppy water. Yeah. This announcement of the smokers approaching has put a stay of execution in place as everybody freezes at the announcement and the commerce elder is 
commanding everybody to go to their posts. They have practiced for this sort of thing. It's time for them to jump into action. And I like that they are practiced because this is literal life and death. They will die if the smokers get in here, so they'd better have a well-practiced plan in place. In next week's episode, I think I would like to talk more about that well-practiced plan idea. Well, you can practice and you can practice and you can practice, but there's also the saying that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Yeah. (laughs) There's that whole business. But getting back to the smokers proper, I really appreciate the way that they've constructed their attack force because while they have their individual smokers on jet skis, which the book describes as berserkers, they also pepper in larger watercraft that Mm -hmm. serve different purposes. For instance, after we see the long line, we cut in on a boat. That boat has a ladder on it and a collection of structures supporting that ladder. They are going to use that like a siege tower later on in future episodes. And in the last wide shot of this clip, you can see that there are also other boats that are just designated as gunboats carrying larger groups of smokers that can attack once a hole is made. This force definitely, on first glance, seems so much better organized than the atoll. It's really a shame these two groups can't work together. I know, right? Because the atoll has got some things down. They've got electricity down, and they've got generating organic matter down-ish. They could do better, but they're on the way. And they've got the ideas of residential space and a community council and a community store. So they've got more of the civic things at least started. Mm -hmm. And the smokers have the military side of things pretty well down so far that we see. So it's a real shame they can't work together. Yeah. We do get a quick shot of the enforcer approaching a weapon rack and handing weapons out to the atollers. The majority of their weapons are all close combat, clubs, makeshift swords. We see later on in future episodes, they have bows, arrows, spears, crossbows, no gunpowder. Yes. That no is where they fall down. Gunpowder. They've got no modern weapons to fight the smokers with. And it's uh, it's like 12th century going up against 20th century. Yeah, it's a knife to a gunfight. Mm-hmm. Literally, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight. So they've got a hard battle up ahead of them. And the one thing they've got going for them is that they are behind a wall. But we will find out very quickly how effective that wall is. So join us next time where we will see the Atollers scramble to their defenses as the smokers surround the Atoll and the Deacon unleashes his most terrifying weapon. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 18. We'll see you next time.